and welcome to The Intersect. I'm Eric Tischler. Apt Associates tackles complex challenges around the world, ranging from improving health and education to assessing the impact of environmental changes. For any given problem, we bring multiple perspectives to the table. We thought it would be enlightening and maybe even fun to pair up colleagues from different disciplines so they can share their ideas and perhaps spark new thinking about how we solve these challenges. Today I'm joined by two of those colleagues, Dr. Gene O'Connor and Dr. Matt Trombley. Gene has more than two decades of experience working at the federal and state level to address social determinants of health and build equitable, resilient, and healthy communities. Matt has over 10 years of experience in applied health economics and health policy evaluation, and his primary research currently encompasses value-based payment designs, such as bundled payments and accountable care organizations, or ACOs. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Gene, let's start with you. You recently wrote a great blog on rural areas and the social determinants of health. What are some of the health challenges that you see as particularly distinct in rural areas? Yeah, rural areas really face a significant health burden. People who live in rural areas, especially older adults, are more likely to face higher rates of um, obesity, food insecurity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, stroke, and even injury, things like motor vehicle related crashes, um, rates of poor outcomes and death, even from, from those kinds of things are higher as well. Matt, why don't you tell us a little about ACOs, which are intended to help rural areas? Sure. So uh, an ACO stands for an accountable care organization. And as the uh, name suggests, uh, this is something that brings together uh, different groups of providers to be accountable for uh, the entirety of uh, beneficiaries, uh, patients' care. So essentially, uh, under uh, standard fee-for-service payment, uh, each different service that a beneficiary receives, um, you know, going to the doctor, uh, visiting the ER, will all uh, come with a separate bill. Whereas under the accountable care system, uh, each beneficiary, uh, their total cost care over the uh, course of a year uh, is attributable to the organization. And so these organizations band together to coordinate care uh, across uh, the different types of providers, and then hopefully provide care more efficiently with higher quality, um, which has the added benefit of helping to hopefully curb costs. Right, and Matt, you've evaluated ACOs, and and what were your findings? Right, so um, the ACO investment model in particular was uh, a CMS model that uh, Apt Associates evaluated, and. Um, we found ultimately that uh, the ACO investment model reduced uh, net uh, Medicare spending by about $380 million uh, over the course of three years. And this was primarily achieved by uh, keeping people uh, out of the hospital, out of other types of institutional care. Um, so, uh, and we saw this without any adverse effects on uh, patient reported measures of quality, as well as uh, other um, more claims-based measures of quality. Uh, so we, it seems that CMS was able to um, reduce spending overall um, while helping to keep people out of the hospital uh, and, and not otherwise uh, having adverse impacts on their care. Great. So AIM is intended to help ACOs with challenges they might be facing. Gene, you want to tell us what some of those challenges are? Well, in rural areas, providers really are going to face a number of challenges in participating in an ACO. I mean, first, their patients are pretty widely dispersed, right? And the providers themselves are pretty widely dispersed. In an urban area, you may have a group of providers affiliated with a health system who are all participating. Um, their patients are, you know, in a, a small geographic area. Um, they're able to manage them, you know, physically 
and through things like their data systems. In a rural area, you may have a large group of otherwise unaffiliated right, primary care providers, an unaffiliated hospital, other unaffiliated specialists, all in an ACO. They may be spread out over, in some cases, you know, a dozen counties or more um, in some large you know, rural states. And, and they won't share the same uh, electronic health record system necessarily. So they're going to be really highly dependent on things like the state's health information exchange and using that to be able to share information and data about patients in a timely way. Um, they're going to be really dependent on um, kind of informal networks of communication with those other providers. And all of those things can really make achieving the intended outcome of an ACO more challenging, um, particularly when you're trying to talk about achieving shared savings and you're, you know, you're working with someone several counties over that you've maybe never sent a patient to. And also if you're a primary care provider in a rural area, you know, you may not have a large staff and you may only see one or two of a particular kind of a, a serious chronic condition or someone with multiple chronic conditions. And, and Managing those patients in that kind of a setting can be really challenging. It's really different from being in an area where you might see a high volume of the same number of patients with the same kinds of conditions. So I think we have to keep all of those things in mind when we think about, um, you know, the implementation of ACOs in, in rural areas. Right. So the uh, ACO investment model was uh, designed with uh, some of these challenges in mind, uh, primarily uh, those, uh, you know, financial barriers, uh, things that can be can be solved with uh, additional funding. So you mentioned, um, you know, the need for um, electronic health record systems that can communicate across providers, um, perhaps um, additional, um, not only hardware and software, but the IT staff to maintain them, um, hiring new staffing, such as care coordinators or um, new uh, clinical uh, professionals who can, um, you know, uh, triage patients during off hours or the, these types of capabilities that may be um, sort of come naturally at scale to, to large urban providers. Um, those types of investments require uh, uh, financial uh, investments that, that typically um, are, are unavailable to, to small rural providers. And so the ACO investment model uh, tried to tackle this by providing um, not only uh, a set amount of upfront funding for uh, these accountable care organizations, but also two years of ongoing payments uh, at a per beneficiary level so that the larger the organization was, the more support they got to try to um, scale up in a way that, that could meet the, the populations they were serving. And I really like what you said about um, care coordinators because you know one of the things we haven't talked too much about yet, but that is important in rural areas, and it's important in urban areas too, is this need for not just care coordination, but also support for patients in achieving their health goals and identification of things that might be getting in the way of them being able to you know, control their diabetes or control their hypertension. Do they have what they need at home to be able to do that? Are they able to eat well enough? Um, do they know where their meals are coming from and can they get fresh fruits and vegetables and those kinds of things? Um, those are challenges everywhere in this country um, for people, but in particular in rural areas, there may be a greater opportunity even to try to help connect people to existing services or um, you know, solve 
challenges in their communities that might be preventing them from being able um, to do the things that their physicians recommending in order to control their chronic condition. Great. So with that in mind, Jean, uh, what do ACOs and the AIM model uh, mean to you in terms of people living in rural areas? Yeah, well, anytime you can keep people out of the hospital or help keep them well, right, that's a good thing for those individuals and for the communities and for their families. You know, one of the things in rural communities that's really challenging is oftentimes there's a long distance to care. Um, You may have to travel a long way to get to your primary care provider and particularly to get to specialty providers or acute care um, that you may only be able to get in the hospital. Sometimes people are traveling upwards of, you know, two to three to four hours to get to acute care facilities that can meet their needs for their specialized condition or provide that state-of-the-art care. So really anything we can do to try to keep people from having and their families from having to go through those kinds of things um, is really important. Um, Accountable care organization models have been really successful. Um, as Matt just described, and you know, in some places, and they can really help to ensure that not only do people stay out of the hospital, but that they have a good care experience. They're getting only the care they need, not care they don't need, and they're getting it from people who understand who else they've seen and and what their medical history might be. So, in that regard, you know, accountable care organizations can be a great thing uh, for many people. And we talked a little bit before this podcast about some you know, concerns both with the AIM model and rural hospitals in general, and specifically making sure they're still able to operate. Uh, Matt, you want to start first and talk about some of the challenges you, you found? Right. So there's always this tension uh, between, uh, at least in, in the rural context, certainly, or, or any sort of underserved area, um, between the goal of trying to um, provide care more efficiently, um, but also trying to uh, balance uh, access when doing so. So a lot of these uh, rural providers, particularly hospitals, um, may be operating on very low margins, have very little uh, financial uh, bandwidth and and are, uh, or margin rather. And so um, if you're trying to uh, deliver care more efficiently and keep people out of the hospital, uh, you're actually reducing revenue for these critical service providers, uh, potentially uh, causing an existential threat for these organizations. And so being able to balance the need to um, keep people out of the hospital when they don't need to be there, while at the same time making sure the hospital stays in place to be able to continue providing care for those who need it. Right. And Gene, how about you? Because there's there's a follow-on from that immediate threat to the facilities, right? Yeah. So, of course, you know, having those facilities there is really important because a lot of times, not only are they important to providing the acute care, but they act as a center in the community. Um, you know, many times you'll see primary care um, practices surrounding hospitals or affiliated with hospitals. Um, and so the well-being of the hospital is important to the well-being of the community and therefore the, the patients and the people that are served. Um, at the same time, you know, there's this opportunity that comes along with this to really transition, you know, what services are being offered. More and more, we know about evidence-based interventions that um, if delivered to people can help keep them in their homes. And and in some cases, those interventions are are new services that hospitals and healthcare providers could be offering, um, but aren't currently. And so making those kinds of transitions in in their practices can also 
you know, have this sort of net effect of helping the community overall both maintain its infrastructure while also transitioning to some of that more preventive care. So let's talk a little bit more about helping facilities to stay operational. Matt, you want to talk about some of your findings in the AIM evaluation um, in which you suggest there's some alternate approaches in which both facilities uh, and CMS can benefit. And I'm not thinking specifically of how you looked at downside risk. Right. So it's taken as a given by a lot of payers, particularly uh, CMS on the Medicare side, that eventually organizations participating in these uh, value-based payment programs are going to have to take on what's called downside risk. So uh, currently under um, upside-only risk or one-sided risk, if um, providers can can share in the savings that they generate by reducing unnecessary care, but they are not on the hook for um, paying back uh, CMS if uh, costs go up. And uh, so, so eventually the goal is frequently to move participants to that uh, higher downside risk where they face the possibility of having to pay out money to CMS. Uh, now, again, we talked about how in these rural areas, a lot of providers uh, may not have uh, the ability to take on that kind of risk. They just don't have the uh, financial capability to absorb, uh, you know, a string of bad luck. And so uh, one thing to consider uh, in these particular um, particular uh, contexts is to uh, allow providers either uh, a longer pathway to downside risk or potentially to waive uh, downside risk completely. Uh, now, the way that our uh, AIM evaluation informs this is we did find that um, when the model ended after three years, um, about uh, two-thirds of the uh, participating organizations left uh, the model. They quit uh, participating as, as ACOs. Uh, but when we looked at the data, um, those who stayed and those who left had generated uh, essentially equal savings for CMS on a per beneficiary level. Uh, and that's true across all three years of the model. So it looks like um, the model potentially left some money on the table in terms of organizations that were generating savings uh, under the one-sided risk, choosing to leave the model when faced with downside risk. And so um, it opens the question of whether um, savings can, can be achieved and maintained uh, without uh, downside risk, uh, at least in the rural context, and, and also um, the extent to which that may um, provide um, uh, a better ability for uh, sustaining the, the existence of these rural providers because they're not um, being faced with these potential negative shocks, the, these downside risks that could, could be financially ruinous for them. Yeah, so that's an exciting question, and so so let me pivot from there to say, you know, so what what next? You know, this is actually <laughs> it's like this nice conversation where it feels like there are gains are being made. Um, what what do we want to be looking at next to keep making gains and um, and help bolster these communities? I, I was just going to comment, you know, Eric, on on what you were saying about um, and and what Matt was saying about you know the the risks in rural communities and. I think one of the things we have to recognize is that a lot of things are harder in rural communities and, and there, there are some significant shifts happening in demographics. Um, younger people are moving away from rural areas and into urban areas. Um, the economy is primarily still agriculture in most rural communities. And so, you know, when we think about what's going to make sense for healthcare providers, I think we have to keep in mind, you know, that they are absorbing an older by and large, sicker population, um, and they face significant challenges in recruiting staff and, and um, other things that are required to keep their practices operating. So 
it's never been easy to work in a, a rural area and under resourced or an underserved area. But I think, you know, particularly as we see these demographic shifts continuing, it's definitely something that, you know, might be important to bear in mind um, as we think about designing, you know, models that that work. One of the uh, key design features uh, for this upcoming chart model, which is um, more focused on um, not so much uh, grouping together providers uh, under an accountable umbrella, but an actual community uh, led by certain organizations. And so in these cases, there is a, a focus in the design of the model to really drill down on some of these populations who either have um, you know, multiple chronic conditions or um, behavioral health or substance use disorders. So really trying to, to drill down on um, these populations that can be overrepresented in the rural areas, uh, but who have enormous healthcare needs and, and frankly, uh, you know, can drive a lot of healthcare costs and really trying to uh, improve healthcare for these individuals in a way that they hope will also um, lead to savings down the road as well. Well, it's great that the two of you are investigating these rural health challenges from you know both the the community aspect and then the financial aspect in terms of health services. Uh, so I'm glad that intersect is taking place within APT. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. And thank you for joining us at the intersect. <laughs>